Let me invite you uh, this morning to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48 um, for our time of study in the Word. We're going to actually start in 47 at the very end. But if you turn to 48, you'll be real close to where you're supposed to be. Uh, We're continuing our study through the book of uh, Genesis, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Genesis chapter 47, verse 27, and my goal this morning is to cover those final few verses in chapter 47 and then all the way through the length of chapter uh, 48, and I hope I have not bitten off more than I can chew. There's a lot for us to look at in these verses If you want to give a title uh, to the message this morning, it would be a patriarch in Egypt whose heart is in Canaan, a patriarch in Egypt whose heart is in Canaan. What we're going to see in our passage today is a very old man named Jacob who is said to be sick and about to die. He has to collect his strength, even to sit up in bed. That's how weak he is. His eyes are failing, and he cannot see very well. When it comes to Jacob's physical body, we see nothing in our passage today but weakness. Yet spiritually speaking, we see a robust faith in Jacob that has never been stronger. His faith is firm The demand that he makes of his son Joseph is insistent. His memory of God's revelation to him from decades earlier is clear and precise as if God had spoken just the day before. His actions are deliberate and his vision for the future is as clear-sighted as an eagle's. His days are very short, but we will find him in our passage today making long-range plans for the future, which is just amazing. My grandfather on my mother's side uh, lived to the age of 103. He passed away in 2003. When he was 99 years old, I was talking to him on the phone, and I asked him if he had any plans for his 100th birthday And I'll never forget his reply. He said, oh, I don't make plans anymore. I don't even buy green bananas anymore. (laughs) Because I'm not sure I'll be around to eat them when they're ripe. Well, we get that, right? But in our passage today, we're going to see a 147-year-old Jacob staring several hundred years into the future and making plans and taking action, all based upon the promises that God had given to him. You'll be interested to know that what Jacob does in our passage today will make the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. What's even more striking is the fact that this is the only thing that Jacob ever did. 
in his life that gets mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. From the perspective of the writer of Hebrews, this is perhaps Jacob's finest hour. On top of that, his actions in our passage today will shape the future destiny of the nation of Israel in the land of Canaan for centuries to come. Jacob, who is also called Israel, you'll note in our passage today, spends the final 17 years of his life in the land of Egypt after going there to live under Joseph's care. But our passage today will reveal that Jacob's heart, though he is in Egypt, never left Canaan. He never allowed himself to be assimilated into Egyptian society, but he kept his eyes on the promise. He kept his eyes on Canaan, believing the promise of God that God will bless his many descendants with the land of Canaan. And Jacob is making arrangements in our passage today based upon those promises. And the way we're going to break down our study of this text is we'll observe six acts of Jacob in preparing for the blessings God promised for his descendants in Canaan. Six acts of Jacob in preparing for the blessings God promised for his descendants in Canaan. And the first act that we see is at the very end of chapter 47. The first act is that Jacob obtains a promise from Joseph to bury him in Canaan. Observe the context for what happens in this section, beginning in verse 27. Now, Israel, speaking of the family of Jacob, who was also called Israel, lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. The picture here is one of fertility and prosperity and acquisition by Jacob's family in the land of Egypt, which is all an amazing sign of God's great blessing upon them all. But it probably had a downside also, making Jacob's family a little bit too comfortable in Egypt, so comfortable that they might have been tempted to forget about the land of Canaan altogether, the land that they are destined for. As for how Jacob himself is doing, observe what is said in verse 28. The text says, Jacob lived in the land of Canaan 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. It seems like Jacob has done quite well for himself, living 17 years watching his family prosper in the land of Egypt under Joseph's great care. But is his heart being beguiled by the prosperity that his family is experiencing in Egypt. Not hardly. We see evidence of that in the coming verses. As Jacob approaches the day of his death, he calls for Joseph and observe what he does starting in verse 29. The text says, when the time for Israel, that's Jacob was called Israel, God gave him that name. And so we find him being called Israel quite a bit in the latter part of Genesis. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, 
Place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. This is something we don't do today when promises are made. The translation, place your hand under my thigh, is a very delicate way of saying that Joseph is to place his hand underneath the source of Jacob's seed, the seat of Jacob's reproductive capacity. Joseph would know from this request that Jacob is about to make him swear an oath of utmost personal and intimate importance to Jacob. An oath that will have everything to do with the destiny of his descendants who issued forth from Jacob. With Joseph's hand under Jacob's thigh, Jacob makes this plea to Joseph. Verse 29, please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. The burial place that Jacob is talking about is the place where Abraham and Sarah are buried in Hebron, along with Isaac and Rebekah. Most importantly, Hebron was in the land of Canaan, and that's where Jacob wants to be buried, not in Egypt. We should note that Jacob here does not view the disposal of his body after death as a meaningless thing. It matters to him. So he names the spot in Canaan where he wants Joseph to make sure that he is buried. And keep in mind that this isn't the most convenient location for Jacob to be buried. Hebron is about 240, 250 miles away from where Jacob is right now in Egypt And his family will have to travel there riding on donkeys or in wagons being pulled by donkeys through some pretty harsh wilderness. Jacob knows that it will be an inconvenience to Joseph and to his family to bury him in Canaan. But Jacob views this as important enough to make this arrangement in advance. He wants to be buried in Canaan where his descendants will be in a future day. Jacob seems to also know that it will be a very meaningful exercise for his family to leave Egypt and return to Canaan in order to bury him. All of them as a family coming together to carry his body to Canaan for burial would remind them of the land of their destiny and their trip to Canaan to bury Jacob will serve as a dress rehearsal for the exodus that will come many years from now. So Jacob, or Israel, makes his request of Joseph. Observe Joseph's response. Verse 30, and he, Joseph, said, I will do as you have said. Jacob, though, is not content. Verse 31, he said, swear to me. So he, Joseph, swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Once Jacob receives this promise from Joseph, the Hebrew text 
simply says he bowed, and the New American Standard translators add the words in worship to explain why he bowed at the head of his bed. And this perfectly fits with the ancient Septuagint translation of this verse, which says Israel worshipped. Interestingly, though, the ancient Greek Septuagint translation actually says Israel worshipped upon the top of his staff rather than at the head of his bed. And it's this Septuagint translation that gets quoted in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. And the reason for the confusion is that the Hebrew word for bed and the Hebrew word for staff have exactly the same consonants. And there were no vowels written in the original Hebrew text. So the translation could actually go either way, meaning staff or bed. Both meanings are actually quite possible. Perhaps Jacob was bowing in worship at the head of his bed while at the same time bowed in worship over the top of his staff. What is totally clear, though, is that Jacob is worshiping God and his worship of God is tied to the promise that he just received from Joseph to bury him in Canaan. He's worshiping God over his funeral arrangements. That's how important this is to Jacob. It's no meaningless thing. Jacob's family is prospering in Egypt and maybe feeling quite at home there, but Jacob's heart is still in Canaan, the land of promise. Canaan is his homeland, and it's where he wants to be buried. So he makes Joseph promise to bury him there. But this is not all that we see Jacob doing in the waning days of his life. He has more to get done and accomplish to prepare his descendants for the future settlement of Canaan. And this brings us to the second act of Jacob in preparing for the blessings that God promised for his descendants in Canaan. Number two, just kind of a clunky way to say this, but let's word it this way. Jacob reminds Joseph of God's promise to bless him with descendants and Canaan. He reminds Joseph of God's promise to bless him with descendants and the land of Canaan. Observe what happens in verse 1 of chapter 48. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he, Joseph, took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him, obviously, to visit his dad. By the way, if someone ever asks you, where is the first mention of sickness in the Bible? The answer is right here in Genesis 48, verse 1. Jacob is no longer just in a weakened state due to old age. He has actually fallen sick, making his death all the more a looming reality. Joseph immediately upon hearing this news goes to visit his dad. And he brings his two sons with him, perhaps knowing what his dad intended to do based on prior arrangements that they had made together. But observe what happens in verse 2. When it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Notice 
how the name Jacob and Israel are used interchangeably here. Jacob was told that Joseph was coming, but it was Jacob acting as Israel who sat up in bed ready to do some important work that would shape the destiny of the nation of Israel descended from him. Observe what Jacob does in verse 3. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, or El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz, which is the ancient name for the city of Bethel. He appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Notice his obsession with Canaan. And he blessed me, Jacob says. Actually, God appeared to him twice at Bethel or Luz, once when Jacob was fleeing from Esau in Genesis 48, and then again when Jacob was returning to the land of Canaan back to his father's house in Genesis chapter 35, about 20 years uh, later. Jacob, speaking as Israel, continues talking about El Shaddai in verse 4, saying to Joseph, verse 4, And he, El Shaddai, said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. The name El Shaddai speaks of God as the all-sufficiently powerful one, the one who can make any promise that he pleases and fulfill every promise that he makes. And notice the threefold promise from God to Jacob. I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make you a company of peoples or tribes. And three, I will give you this land, speaking of the land of Canaan, to your descendants as an everlasting possession. You can see here how Jacob is really trying to burn into Joseph's mind the importance of the land of Canaan and how prominently it figures into the future of his descendants. Jacob does not want his descendants getting comfortable in, in Egypt and being at home in Egypt. He doesn't want his family to get so caught up in acquiring property in Egypt that they forget that God has promised them that he will be giving them the land of Canaan as an everlasting property or possession. Egypt is not to be the possession of Jacob's numerous descendants, Canaan is. And Jacob is reminding Joseph of this. By the way, there's something really beautiful here in Jacob's words that would be easy to miss that really can help us in knowing how to read the commands of God that we find in Scripture Notice that Jacob is referring to an earlier moment in Luz or Bethel, and he recalls God as saying to him on that earlier occasion, I will make you fruitful, and literally the Hebrew is numerous. Notice those two words, fruitful and numerous. And notice how Jacob states what God had said to him as a promise to make him fruitful and numerous. Yet, when you go back to the moment when God used those two words, fruitful and numerous, in Genesis 35, 
you find that those two words do not show up inside of a promise, but inside of a command. What God actually said to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11 is this. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. Literally, this reads, be fruitful and be numerous. Same two Hebrew words. In other words, guys, in Genesis 35, 11, God gives Jacob the command to be fruitful and numerous. Yet what Jacob hears in those commands are the words, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I love that. I think all of us need to be more like Jacob here. We often say that whenever you see a command of God, you can know that there is a promise of enablement embodied in that command. And we see proof of that truth here. Let that encourage you to open your Bible, open to the New Testament and start marking every command of God to you and see God's promise of enablement inside of every one of those commands. If you read Romans 12, 2, that says be transformed and you go around telling people, hey, I was reading Romans 12, 2, and God told me that he's going to transform me. God would be just fine with that. That's a good read of that command because inside of every command of God is the promise of enablement. That's how Jacob heard the command of God. Anyway, Jacob or Israel is talking to Joseph here and he reviews God's promises regarding his descendants and the land of Canaan. He reviews these things with Joseph as a prelude to what he's about to do in the coming verses. And this brings us to the third act of Jacob in preparing for the blessings God promised for his descendants in Canaan. Number three, Jacob adopts Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own. Now, what Jacob does here will seem very unusual to us, but it was not unheard of back in this day for a man to adopt one of his grandchildren or more than one for the purpose of managing how his inheritance will get dispersed which is what Jacob is intending to do here. Observe what Jacob says to Joseph in verses five and six. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours they shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. We know actually of no other children that Joseph had besides Ephraim and Manasseh. But that doesn't mean that he had no other children, sons or daughters. We know that he will have grandchildren through them even before the book of Genesis is concluded and Jacob is saying that Joseph can count any other children or grandchildren as his own but that they will all live in the land of Canaan in the territory that Ephraim and Manasseh will inherit 
As for what Jacob is doing with Joseph's sons here, what Jacob is essentially saying to Joseph is this. For the purposes of inheriting the land of Canaan in a future day, I am elevating your two sons, Joseph, to the status of being my sons, so they will receive an inheritance of land in Canaan as if they were among my sons. And then Jacob says, as Reuben and Simeon are. This is astounding. Reuben is Jacob's firstborn son, and Simeon is his secondborn son. And Jacob's language here indicates that not only will Ephraim and Manasseh become his sons, but that they will be bumping Reuben and Simeon from their place as the first and the second born sons of Jacob. For the purpose of allocating the land of Canaan in the coming centuries, Ephraim and Manasseh will be counted as the first two sons of Jacob. And then Reuben and Simeon will be counted as the third and the fourth. Part of the reason Jacob wants to honor Joseph and his sons in this way is found in verse 7. Listen to what he says. He says, now as for me, when I came from Padan or Padanaram, Rachel, who was Joseph's mother, died. She died giving birth to Benjamin to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. He brings up Rachel. Evidently, part of the reason why he's doing what he's doing with Joseph and his sons is to honor Rachel. You will recall that Rachel was the woman that Jacob wanted to marry in the first place. But Rachel's dad tricked Jacob and gave to Jacob Rachel's sister Leah on what should have been Jacob and Rachel's wedding night. What an awful trick to play on someone. If Jacob had gotten what he had worked for for seven years, he had gotten on his wedding day what Rachel's dad was supposed to give him, and that is Rachel. Rachel would have been given to him that very night and would have no doubt been Jacob's one and only wife. And if that were the case, then Joseph, who is Rachel's firstborn son, would have been Jacob's firstborn son. We learned back in Genesis 35 that Rachel died while giving birth to Benjamin. We learn here that Rachel's death was still a very bitter grief to Jacob. And this would have not only been because he, upon her dying, is now without his favorite wife, but also because after her death, Jacob would know that she, I will no longer receive any more sons through her who can inherit the land of Canaan. So think of it this way. Jacob is now officially counting Joseph as his firstborn son because he is the firstborn son of Rachel. And typically in these days, the firstborn son would receive a double inheritance. And Jacob is giving that double inheritance to Joseph by adopting Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as if they are his first and second oldest sons. Does that make sense? And if you have any doubts about this, all you have to do is read 
Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, where the text says, Reuben was the firstborn of Israel, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. And we see that happening here in our passage today. By the way, you'll notice, if you're paying attention, that as Jacob is speaking about Joseph's sons, that he is using Ephraim's name first and then Manasseh's, even though Manasseh was the oldest. Just the order of the names coming out of Jacob's mouth here serves as a hint to what becomes obvious in the coming verses. And this leads us to the fourth act of Jacob in preparing for the blessings that God promised for his descendants in Canaan. Number four, Jacob blesses Joseph's sons with his right hand on Ephraim and left hand on Manasseh. Observe what Jacob does in verse 8. When Israel, or Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? The Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna suggests, and others suggest along with him, that Jacob is asking this question as a part of the formal adoption ceremony, not because he doesn't know who the boys are. For example, at every wedding that I officiate, uh, the dad will walk his daughter down the aisle, and then I will ask, who gives this woman to be married to this man? I never ask that question because I don't know the answer, but because it's simply a part of the formal ceremony, and the same is what is happening here. Jacob asked the formal question, who are these? So Joseph plays his part in the formal exchange and answers his father's question in verse 9. Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. Joseph is their father, and as their father, he has the legal right to give them up for adoption to Jacob. The ceremony continues. So he, Israel, said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he, Jacob, or Israel, kissed them and embraced them. This kiss and this embrace were formal gestures that represented Jacob's adopting them as his sons. Each son would approach Jacob or Israel and come between Jacob's knees and then be embraced and kissed by him, representing him receiving them as his very own sons. And upon adopting these two sons of Joseph, Jacob is just so filled with gratitude. Look at verse 11. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. This old man is welling up with tears and joy, overwhelmed by the amazing goodness of God. After the kiss and the embrace of Joseph's two sons, observe what Joseph does in verse 12. The text says, then Joseph took them. 
In other words, he took Ephraim and Manasseh from his knees. In other words, from Jacob's knees and bowed with his face to the ground, thereby formally acknowledging his surrender of his two sons to his dad for adoption. And with that gesture, the adoption ceremony is concluded. Ephraim and Manasseh are at this point in time in their very early 20s. They're not little little boys. They're in their early 20s at this point, and they are now adopted as Israel's sons. And now Israel can bless them as his own sons, which is what happens next in the order of things. Observe what Joseph does in verse 13. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him, speaking of Jacob or Israel. Manasseh, as we've seen, is the oldest son of Joseph, so Joseph makes sure to have Manasseh in his own left hand in order to steer him toward the right hand of Jacob. And this makes sense because the right hand was viewed as the hand of greater blessing, which Joseph wanted Manasseh to receive because he was the firstborn son of Joseph. But notice what happens in verse 14. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And with his hands in those cross positions, observe what Israel or Jacob does. He blessed Joseph, and he does so by blessing his sons, and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth." The word that is translated earth here is the same Hebrew word translated land earlier in this chapter when the word has occurred. So we should understand the word the same way here as referring to the land of Canaan. You'll be interested to know that the Hebrew word translated grow into a multitude is simply the Hebrew word for fish turned into a verb. Jacob is literally wishing upon them that they would multiply like fish in the land of Canaan. That's tremendous fertility. Also notice the three things that Jacob says about God. First of all, he describes God in verse 15 as the God before whom Abraham and Isaac walked. In other words, they live their lives in full view of God and under his watchful care. As for himself, Jacob describes God as the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. 
This is the first reference to God as shepherd in the Bible. But it won't be the last, right? Jacob is marveling at how God has been a faithful shepherd to him all the days of his life, providing for him and feeding him and protecting him and even disciplining him when necessary. There's been some wonderful highs in Jacob's life and some embarrassing, painful lows in his life as well. And many lessons that Jacob has learned the hard way. Yet through all of such moments, the one constant has been God, the faithful shepherd who has shepherded Israel or Jacob through the maze of it all. And that's the way we're all going to talk at the end of our lives. There's a whole lot of mess and sideways motion and ups and downs in my life. The one constant is God has been my shepherd and he's been faithful to me. This is good for Joseph to hear Jacob talk this way, testify in this way. It's good for Ephraim and Manasseh to hear Jacob testify of God in this way as his hands are upon them. Jacob also describes God in verse 16 as the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Jacob is using the word angel to speak of the angel of the Lord. In other words, God appearing to him in human-like form on occasions. For example, in Genesis 32, 24, we're told that a man wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. Who was that man? It was God Because Jacob said afterward, I have seen God face to face. Speaking of this very wrestling match, the prophet Hosea says in Hosea 12, 4, he, Jacob, wrestled with the angel and prevailed. All this to say that here in verse 16 of our passage today, the angel whom Jacob is referring to is God who showed up at crucial times and ultimately delivered Jacob from evil. Evil from Laban, evil from Esau, evil from other people, and even from the evil of his own heart. And having described God in this threefold way, Jacob voices three expressions of desire in this blessing that he is now speaking over Ephraim and Manasseh in verse 16. Number one, that God would bless the lads, that he would bless Ephraim and Manasseh. Number two, that God would cause Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's name to live on in them. And number three, that they would grow into a multitude in the midst of the land of Canaan. These words of blessing are being spoken upon both of the sons of Joseph, these words apply to both of them, but they're being spoken while Jacob's right hand is on Ephraim, the younger one, and his left hand is on Manasseh, the firstborn, meaning that the greater fulfillment of these words will fall upon Ephraim rather than the firstborn Manasseh. Well, Joseph is looking at what has happened here, and he doesn't like what he sees at all. He reacts against what his father Jacob is doing, which provokes yet a fifth act of Jacob in preparing for the blessings that God promised for his descendants in Canaan. Number five, Jacob explains why he blessed Ephraim with his right hand. Observe what happens in verse 17. 
When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. Literally, the Hebrew is, it was evil in his sight. Guys, when it comes to blessing someone, you better get it right. Uh, because it can't be taken back. That was conventional wisdom. And so Joseph moves to act here. It says, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. This is a brazen act on Joseph's part, but he's just sure that his 147-year-old dad is confused and needs the correction. But observe Jacob's response in verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. How many times does God move on our behalf and we think God's making a mistake and we're like, no, not so, Father, not so. And we try to fix it and correct God. And God has to say, I know, my son, I know, I know what I'm doing. His father refused and said, I know, my son, I know he, Manasseh, the firstborn, will also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So Jacob was intentional in what he was doing after all. He intended to place his right hand on the head of Ephraim so that the greater blessing will pass to Ephraim rather than to his older brother Manasseh. And Jacob does this because he has prophetically discerned that Ephraim will become the greater of the two in God's plan. And Jacob is simply acting consistently with what he's discerned to be God's plan for the future. We need to realize, guys, that God does as he pleases. He's not bound by the conventions of man. If God wants to bless the second-born Isaac over the first-born Ishmael, God can do that because he's God. If God wants to bless the second-born Jacob over the first-born Esau, God can do that because he is God. And if he wants to bless Ephraim, the second born over his older brother Manasseh, God can do that because he is God. And he can do as he pleases. And Jacob is simply reflecting God's choice that he has perceived in the way that he is going about placing his hands and blessing these two boys. Observe how Jacob concludes the blessing after this interruption. It says in verse 20, he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessing saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Wow, Jacob is blessing these boys with the ultimate blessing. They will become so blessed that their blessing will be the standard of blessing for later generations to aspire to and wish upon others. In a future day, it will become common for people trying to find the best way I can wish someone well and the highest that they can think to convey is, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. 
That's how blessed these two boys are going to be. So both of these boys will be hugely blessed, but Jacob insists that Ephraim will be primary, which is why the narrator says at the end of verse 20, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. The truth is, guys, we may not know yet the full fulfillment and meaning of Jacob's words in these verses regarding Ephraim. In verse 19, he says that Manasseh will become a great people, which seems to have been fulfilled in the land of Canaan. Yet Jacob says that Ephraim's descendants shall become a multitude of nations. That's interesting. Ephraim did go on to become prominent in the land of Canaan from the very outset. Joshua, who led the conquest of Canaan, was from what tribe? Ephraim. It was the tribe of Ephraim that led the revolt against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, when the kingdom of Israel experienced a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Ephraim led in that rebellion and got nine of the other tribes of Israel to side with him. Essentially, Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern kingdom, was of the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was such a powerful tribe in the northern kingdom that there are several occasions in the Old Testament where the ten tribes of the northern kingdom are simply called Ephraim. That name, Ephraim, was used as a title for the northern kingdom at times in the Old Testament. That's how powerful this tribe became. This would also mean that Ephraim was among the ten lost tribes of Israel who were dispersed when the Assyrians conquered them in 722 B.C. So we know that many of the tribe of Ephraim went on to live in other lands and had offspring and populated the earth and other places. So we'll actually have to wait until eternity to discover what modern peoples have descended from Ephraim. Whatever the full truth is, all of us, when we see the fullness of it, will look back and realize how true Jacob's words of blessing proved to be here. Jacob, or Israel, has one more thing to say to Joseph on this occasion, one more piece of business to transact, which brings us to the final act of Jacob in preparing for the blessings of God promised for his descendants in Canaan, number six, Israel or Jacob promises Joseph a double portion of land in the land of Canaan. Observe what Jacob says to Joseph in verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. That's the land of Canaan. When he says you, he's speaking of Joseph and all of his brothers and their descendants whom God will one day take out of Egypt and bring back to the land of Canaan. And here's what Jacob promises Joseph that he will do. Verse 22, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. English translations handle this verse differently though most translate it in a way that is similar to the New American Standard that you see on the screen behind me, in all likelihood, Jacob is telling Joseph that at the very least that he will have a double allotment 
of the land of Canaan, one going to Ephraim and one going to Manasseh, which would give Joseph one portion more than his brothers who would each get one allotment of land. Even though the land of Canaan has not yet been taken from the Amorites in the moment that Jacob is speaking here, Jacob is so sure of this future conquest that he speaks of it as if it has already been done. That said, there is very likely something else going on here. The Hebrew here has Jacob saying to Joseph, I give you one Shechem above your brothers. So it's not surprising that the land that is allotted to Joseph's son Manasseh ends up including the city of Shechem. At the same time, Joseph could be referring to a particular tract of land or a mountain slope that he presently owns that he is deeding over to Joseph here. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 5, we're told that Jesus meets up with the woman at the well in a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And that parcel of ground referred to in John 4, 5 may very well be what Jacob is deeding over to Joseph here. We know from Genesis chapter 33, verses 18 and 19, that Jacob had purchased a tract of land near Shechem. We know that later Jacob's sons killed all of the men of Shechem with the sword. So it is possible that that tract of land became doubly Jacob's through both purchase and the violence of his sons. And perhaps that is the tract of land that Jacob is giving to Joseph here. Perhaps all of the above is included in Jacob's intentions here. What we do know, guys, is that in the end, Joseph ended up receiving a double allotment of land from Jacob, with one allotment going to Ephraim and one to Manasseh, making it ultimately a pretty big chunk of land that gets allotted to Joseph when you put the land belonging to his two sons together. As you can see on the map, it's clear that Joseph gets the kind of allotment of land that you would expect the firstborn son to receive. And with that transaction regarding the land of Canaan, the curtain closes on Genesis 48. In this chapter, we see a dying patriarch conducting business with his preeminent son, adopting Joseph's sons and blessing them and positioning them for a future day when the land of Canaan will be settled. He does all these things in faith, preparing for the fulfillment of a promise that will come to pass long after he is dead. As the writer of Hebrews says, Jacob is among those faithful souls who died in faith, who never experienced the full fulfillment of the promise, but he never took his eyes off the promise that God had given to him. And his faith should inspire us to keep believing every promise that God gives to us especially the promise of eternity in heaven. Even if we're experiencing prosperity, where we're living right now on earth, that our eyes are still fixed on the promise of future glory with God in heaven. 
Jacob was a man living in Egypt who seemed obsessed with the promise of Canaan. Some might have even accused Jacob of being so Canaan-minded that he was of no Egyptian good. But Jacob wouldn't have cared what anyone thought. In his heart were the highways to Zion. And he wanted his family to be the same way. And think of the long-term good that has come through Jacob's descendants, through, who through Jacob's leadership stayed together as a people in a united vision. And they went to the land of Canaan hundreds of years later and became a nation. And from that nation came the riches of salvation to all of the nations of the earth, including to the people of Egypt. Egypt is blessed to have one so Canaan-minded living among them right now. Jacob was in Egypt, but his heart was in Canaan, just as our heart should be with Christ in heaven. And the truth is that the more heavenly-minded we are in this way, the greater good we can do on earth. As we look at what happens in our passage today, I think we can appreciate what Joseph is doing here in allowing his two sons to be adopted by Jacob and even Joseph's two sons and allowing themselves to be adopted. This is a stunning thing. Remember that Joseph had become a citizen of Egypt, marrying an Egyptian wife given to him by Pharaoh. Joseph had received an Egyptian name from the Pharaoh. Joseph could have set his sons up for a very bright future of upward mobility and prominence in the land of Egypt. But Joseph doesn't do that. In bringing his two sons to Israel or to Jacob and allowing them to be adopted by Jacob, in doing this, Joseph is choosing to forever identify his sons with Israel's family rather than with the Egyptians. He's choosing to identify them with the people of God rather than with the people of Egypt. Keep in mind that Jacob's family is a family of shepherds who were loathsome and abomination to the Egyptians. So this is a hugely radical step for Joseph to let his sons be adopted by Jacob and have them forever identified with the shepherd family of Israel, forever closing off the ladder of success in Egyptian society to his sons. And even these boys... I mean, they're in their 20s. They can resist this if they want. They're all in. And they know what this means. And they're all in, identifying themselves with the people of God. As R. Kent Hughes says, what Joseph does in this passage in bringing his sons to be adopted by Jacob was madness from the perspective of the Nile. But like his father Jacob, Joseph believed the word of promise that God was building a great people who would one day return to the land of promise. Joseph, he knows the revelation that God had given to Abraham in Genesis fifteen thirteen. He knows that the descendants of Jacob will one day be oppressed and afflicted by the Egyptians before they are delivered from the Egyptians Yet Joseph, even knowing of that future oppression, identifies his sons with the people of Israel and allows them to be adopted by Jacob anyway. 
As parents, we should freely give our children up to Christ, who is the greater Israel, bringing them under his blessing and coveting that for our children, even if that identification with Christ closes worldly doors for them, even if it means that they become an abomination in the eyes of the world. We should want our children to esteem the reproach of Christ as greater than the treasures of this world. On another front, when I look at this passage, I I feel a measure of kinship with Ephraim. I'm sure the last thing Ephraim was expecting was for Jacob to place his right hand of blessing on him. After all, he was the second born. That kind of thing didn't happen, intentionally at least. And in the same way, all of us who are Christians should feel unspeakably grateful that God has placed his right hand of blessing on us to bless us with the blessings of salvation. I mean, who saw that coming? After all, we weren't just some second-born child. We weren't even in the family. We were rebels running away from God. And God had to do a little more than cross his hands to bless us with the blessings of salvation. Speaking of crosses, he had to put his son on a cross. And Jesus allowed his hands to be nailed to a cross in order that through him we might be adopted by God himself and be brought under the blessing of salvation through Christ. And what a blessing we have received from God, right? As believers in Jesus, you want to read the blessing and adoption decree that God has spoken over you? It's in Ephesians 1, where we learn, just to read a few of these verses, that God has blessed us. So imagine God's right hand of blessing upon you. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Let these words wash over you. They're even better words than those spoken over Ephraim, being spoken by someone far greater than Jacob himself. And the words of blessing continue into the following verses of Ephesians 1 that I would encourage you to read. God's blessing upon us in Christ is amazing, and it's equally amazing that God would choose to bless us who were so undeserving. But that's how God's grace operates. As one writer says, God's grace cannot be tamed The economy of grace operates on its own principles, humbling human wisdom and exalting the unlikely so that the last are often the first and the first the last. You may be here this morning and think you're the least likely person for God to ever save and bless. I understand you feeling that way because I feel exactly the same way. But I'm here to tell you that God finds special delight 
in giving his salvation blessings to the unexpected. And all of us in this room, if we could get up and share a testimony, we're all just a bunch of unexpected people whom God has surprised with salvation. In closing, I love the fact that Jacob describes God as his shepherd and as the angel who has redeemed him from all evil. We can say the same thing about Jesus. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He also gives us redemption from sin through his blood that was shed at the cross. He delivers us from the evil of hopelessness, the evil of sin, the evil of hell, and he saves us into a life of experiencing his goodness to all who have believed in him. And if you're here today and you have never called upon the name of Christ and looked to him and believed in him for salvation, I plead with you to look to him and believe in him and call upon him today. If you do that, I'm pretty confident that you will find yourself at the end of your life talking about what a good shepherd Jesus has been to you and what a great redeemer he has been to you, just like Jacob is doing here in the final hours of his life. Let's pray together. Lord, we've covered a lot of textual ground today, but thank you for giving us your profitable word profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and training us in righteousness. These things were written for our learning that we through the patience and the comfort of scriptures might have hope and there are some of us in this room, Lord, who desperately need hope right now. We need perspective And all of us find ourselves living in a fallen, broken world that holds certain delights that can sometimes easily charm us and draw us away from focus upon you. This is also a world of sorrow and woe that can cause us to be blinded to your glories. But help us to be like Jacob, Lord, that though we are here, our hearts are in heaven. And yes, we've experienced significant fulfillment of the promises of Scripture, but there are still promises to come. And may we never waver in faith, but fix our eyes upon the city whose builder and maker is God, the heavenly city, when we will be made complete and every wrong will be made right and every tear will be wiped from our eyes and every sorrow will be taken away and there will be no more death and no more pain. This you have promised. And you are the God of Jacob. And we believe with Jacob. the truth of your promise.
We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you. We just pray that you would use what is given in this offering, Lord, for your glory and for the spread of the gospel message. We pray for all other churches around the world, Lord, that are faithfully declaring your truth and spreading your fame. Bless them in their ministry, Lord, and prosper us as we seek to take our stand alongside of them and do the same. At the same time, Lord, we place ourselves underneath your hand of blessing and we submit to the good of you, our adopting God, who longs to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You are a good God, and when we see you as you really are, you are easy to surrender to. And we say these things to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.